0: well why keep going as a christian Uh, i don't mean why keep wearing the label christian or why keep thinking of yourself purely personally in your own private thoughts as a christian even a cultural christian No, why keep living the distinctive life of believers in jesus that the author of hebrews has actually outlined for us in verses 19 to 26 of chapter 10 which you heard read and which you which we looked at last week. That is, why keep living that life of drawing near to God, depending on God for all things, of holding fast to your hope, letting your life be directed by your hope of the heavenly city, of thinking about your brothers and sisters and how you can help each other live the life of love and doing good that Jesus' followers are called to. Oh, and meeting together regularly for that purpose why keep living the life that flows from the conviction about the truth of jesus that he has brought you by his death into a relationship of peace with the living god and that he lives and reigns now in god's presence to save you for all time and completely why keep living this distinctive life the life of followers of jesus well, you say, it's obvious. In fact, you've answered your own question in the asking. I mean, we live this life because, well, because I have this conviction about the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. That's why. But that conviction will be tested severely at times by trial or hardship, ill health or conflict in the family. And that conviction can fade it can drop out of our thinking as we become preoccupied with other things and people do stop living the christian life many of us have seen that many of us know people we might have once been in church with or in our christian union or focus group with people we were close to in youth group but who are no longer active in their church have any involvement with christians who live lives No different from their non-believing neighbours in either their things they pursue or desire or how they treat others. That seems to have been the case with the first hearers of Hebrews. Some they knew had developed, our writer tells us, the habit of not meeting together. They neglected to meet together. They were ceasing to identify with, ceasing to care for their Christian brothers and sisters. They felt no need to join them in stirring each other up to live out their faith in Jesus. And perhaps, you know, we can understand why. There's a cost of identifying yourself as a Christian and of association with Christians. That was true for the first hearers. You heard that in verses 32 to 34 of our reading, that they'd endured ridicule and suffering, lost their property, they'd been put in prison. And while we might not suffer such open persecution, though some of us may, being a Christian these days can be socially awkward and expose you to criticism and conflict, even in your own families as you make those difficult decisions about, say, how much you can endorse other sexual choices. Or as you suggest, that God has a right to command and be listened to. Oh, and a right to judge. And let's face it, meeting together with other Christians, that can just be inconvenient and to drain. I mean, there are, well, I can think of so many other good ways of spending my time, my business, my hobby, my family, my study, my sport and the church. That's just made up of so many people and so many people unlike me, whom I might not choose to associate with normally. And let's face it, relating can be so draining. Again, that was true for the first hearers. In their house churches, they would have been rubbing shoulders with people of vastly different social and economic and racial backgrounds. Think about it. There would have been servants, slaves, with masters as equals in Christ. How odd. Oh, there would have been the rich with the poor. And that can make you so uncomfortable. I mean, what do you talk about? And increasingly, Jews would have been meeting with Greeks and barbarians, people they had learnt from childhood were unclean and to be avoided. And it's true for us, isn't it? We're a mixture of races and nationalities, of educational backgrounds, income, family backgrounds. You actually have to work when you come on Sunday getting to know people, understanding how they are both different and the same. So the temptation is to just drop out, isn't it? To keep absenting yourself. Oh, the temptation strong to put your time and effort into a group you feel more at home with or is more socially acceptable, whether it's that close family or the footy club, the work culture or the synagogue or temple or mosque where you belonged before you believed. A temptation just to stop meeting strong. But it is actually a major symptom of a failing faith, a cooling conviction, this neglect of other Christians and their meeting because it says that you cease to think that the most important thing is to belong to the new people of god brought into being by jesus death it means that you've started to think that you don't have to listen to jesus as he tells you to love his people that you rather than jesus can set your priorities and so as he has earlier in the letter the author And actually, let's remember, this is God himself gives a very strong warning to his hearers about the danger of falling away, a warning to stir them up, to keep living the distinctive life of Jesus' followers, a warning that those who are convicted of Jesus' greatness, that he's the only saviour, will heed, for they know that there's nowhere else to turn for life than trusting jesus for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries anyone who has set aside the law of moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God if we go on sinning deliberately. That's chilling, isn't it? Because we all know that we sin, or at least we should know that. And when we sin, it's often knowing what we should do. We're not ignorant of what to do. It's knowing what we should do and not doing it. There is a willfulness in our sinning. So we know we shouldn't give way to rage at other drivers, but we do. We know we shouldn't let our thoughts linger on that sexual image, but we do. We know we shouldn't grumble or covet or indulge our harsh judging of others. We know we should love our spouse and not be coldly indifferent when we are angry, but we do. This is a chilling warning isn't it and it's also puzzling for it says that there is no hope where we are sinning deliberately there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Yet elsewhere in the Scriptures, there are great promises of forgiveness. Think about 1 John. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us if we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And yes, John writes so that we won't sin, But he goes on to say, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous and he's the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There is atonement without limit in the death of Jesus. Or think about our Lord in our gospel reading. Did you hear him? All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, except of course blasphemy against the spirit they're great promises of forgiveness and there are examples of forgiveness of people who sin knowingly david or the repentant person into corinthians so what does the author have in mind when he is speaking of going on sinning deliberately does he have a certain kind a particular kind of sinning in mind oh and, and how does it relate to other sins Well, yes, he does have a particular kind of sinning in mind. It's what we call the sin of apostasy. That is, the sin of deliberately turning your back on Jesus after you have confessed Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, the sin that he's warned against already in chapter 6. Now, how can I be sure that this talk of sinning deliberately is actually addressing the sin of apostasy? Let me give you some reasons. Firstly, this sin is linked to having received a knowledge of the truth. Our author is speaking to people who have become Christians to all intents and purposes by accepting the truth of the gospel. And secondly, you see, he speaks of deliberately sinning. Now that word speaks of, deliberately speaks of willing and intentional sin, expressing an attitude of contempt for God. It's like the defiant, or high-handed sins spoken of in the Old Testament in Numbers 15, which involved a rejection of the law of the covenant relationship, a rejection of God as king. Oh, and thirdly, notice the person sinning in this way is left without any sacrifice for sin. That means that they have rejected the one effective sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus, which John tells us can atone for all our sins. No sacrifice remains for them because they have turned their back on the only effective sacrifice and done it knowingly. Oh, fourthly, the Old Testament comparison in verse 28 brings home that the sin he's speaking of is apostasy. Anyone, who writes there, who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, he's bringing together there two Old Testament texts, both of which deal with this sin of apostasy. In this case, with the Israelites turning away from the living God to go after idols and so setting aside the covenant. The requirement of two or three witnesses is found in Deuteronomy 17. And that section starts this way if there's found among you with any of your towns that the lord your god is giving you a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the lord your god in transgressing his covenant and has served other gods and worshipped them oh and then says that person you shall bring out to the gates and you'll stone that man or woman to death oh you'll only do it on the evidence verse 6 of Two witnesses or of three witnesses, and the note that well is that they are killed without pity actually is, comes from deuteronomy thirteen and again, that passage starts verse six, If your brother, the son of your mother or your son or your daughter or the wife you embrace, or your friend, who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, "Let us go and serve other." gods well you shall not listen to him nor shall your eye pity him nor shall you spare him nor shall you conceal him but you shall kill him verse 28 describes how the Old Testament law dealt with apostasy abandoning the true God for false gods it told the Israelites how they as a society were to deal with it oh and finally the way this sin is described in verse 29 makes it clear that he is thinking of apostasy when he's thinking of sinning deliberately how much worse punishment so he's arguing from the lesser to the greater how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son of god and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace this sin involves repudiation of the gospel of jesus you see that in the contrasts the gospel says jesus is the exalted son those who sin this sin treat jesus as nothing they treat him with contempt the contempt you would show for a crucified criminal that is after having confessed Jesus, they are now embracing the verdict on Jesus of those who crucified him. Oh, the gospel, as our author has taught so clearly from chapter 7 on, says Jesus' death, his shed blood, is the very thing that sanctifies us, that makes us holy, that fits us for God's presence, that brings us into new covenant relationship with God. But those who sin this sin say it has no value, (laughs) that it's unclean and defiling. The trusting Jesus actually makes you unacceptable to God. And the gospel brings us to rejoice in grace and the gift of the Spirit given through faith in Jesus. But those who sin, this sin, outrage, insult the Spirit by treating this gift of god as if it is no value rejecting it so the sin spoken of in verse 26 is apostasy it's turning away from jesus when you've already claimed to be his followers denying the truth of the gospel you once believed so it's important that i say if you're actually grieved by your sin you know that road rage that that struggle with lust, you know, even if that sin trips you up repeatedly and if you are crying out to Jesus for mercy because you know he's the saviour, you are not sinning this sin. Your sin is not being addressed in these verses. But why is this sin of apostasy so serious? Well, it's so much worse than turning away from the law of Moses because the new covenant is so much greater than the one that's made obsolete it's so much worse than turning away from the sacrifices of that covenant given at Sinai because the sacrifice of Jesus is greater and so much more effective than those sacrifices because Jesus is God's final word in these last days He is spoken to us by his son Because Jesus is the exalted king to whom all will be subject. The Lord to whom God has promised to subject all his enemies under his feet. Oh, because the provision of God to deal with our sin by Jesus' death, his shed blood is both effective and final and never to be repeated. There is nowhere else than Jesus to go to find peace with God, to be spared God's just judgment on our sin. There will never be anywhere or anyone else. See, those who sin this sin, who having confessed Jesus then turn away from Jesus, have cut themselves off from the one place they could find forgiveness. They have denied the only one who could save them and they have done this knowingly. And so, says our author, they are left without hope, with only a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Notice that it's God's judgment, not man's judgment. But it's saying they will suffer the just judgment that befalls all who don't repent and believe the gospel that Jesus is Lord god's judgment on all who oppose him but whereas those who are not yet believers when they learn the truth of jesus are convicted of that truth can turn and repent can call out to christ for forgiveness and inclusion amongst his people those who apostatize who knowingly turn their back on jesus cannot This is all that's left for them because they've knowingly rejected the only one who can spare them on that day. So where can they turn? Now, we may find this language of fury of fire and vengeance confronting, but it is the language of Scripture. It's God's language. Language that, on the one hand, guarantees that no one will be able to resist or withstand God's judgment. On language which also tells us that the judgment is fully deserved. God repays people according to what they've done. You see, we shouldn't think that God is indifferent to his people or their sin. Our author goes on to quote from here from Deuteronomy 32 to remind his hearers who are familiar with the Old Testament that God is active to judge, and he's especially active to judge the idolatry, the apostasy, the contempt of his people. Uh, Moses prophesied of that in Deuteronomy 32 and the history of the people of Israel from judges to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians demonstrated that God is active to judge their idolatry. This is a proven reality, not an empty thread. It is, he says, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we need to hear that, especially those of us who've lived with grace for many years. In fact, we've almost incorporated uh, grace, incorporated our relationship with the true and living God into our domestic routine. And in doing that, we can almost domesticate God. And we can forget how awesome and holy, and just, he is. And so we especially need to hear that our God is living, that he's no dumb, deaf, dead idol whom you can despise without consequence. He is the living God. He's not an idea. He's not a label. He's not just a word without content. He is the living God. And when you are listening to the gospel, Oh, as you're listening here this morning, you're actually dealing with the living God, the creator, the just and holy ruler of all because you're listening to his word. And when you are believing the gospel, you're not just nurturing your spiritual side, you know, developing your spiritual being. No, no, you are coming into relationship with the living God. When you open your Bible at home, You're actually reading the word of the living God who said, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What's the building, the house that you would build for me, says the Lord? Has not my hands made all these things? Yet this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word you're listening to the living God who keeps his promises and who carries out his threats. And yes, when you're turning your back on Jesus, when you're forgetting him, you are despising the living God by treating as of no account his beloved son, by dismissing the word he has spoken through that son as empty and false. And he will give your sin, your contempt, what it deserves. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We should fear God's judgment and know in fearing his judgment that he is the only one we should fear. That's right. If we fear him properly, we don't need to fear our neighbours or our family or our classmates no matter how hostile they are Uh, they can do no more than the almighty God permits for your good he is the living God and you don't need to fear missing out because he is the living God the source of all good whose word whose promise to you will never fail so brothers and sisters as you hear Hebrews this morning don't debate the warning. You know, don't sit there and thinking, oh, were they really believers? Oh, did any of them really do it? Oh, what about election? No. Don't lose yourself there. This author is speaking to believers. He's speaking to people like us. Just hear him. It is a terrible thing to have started as a follower of Jesus and then turned your back on him, to treat God with contempt by rejecting his Saviour. Heed the warning. And those who are convicted of the truth of Jesus will because they know that because Jesus is God's only son, because his is the only sacrifice that can remove the offence of their sin, they know that there is nowhere else to turn for peace with God, for being spared God's judgment on his enemies at the last day. And so believing the gospel, they will cling to Jesus joyfully, gratefully, they'll hold fast to him, whatever the cost, whatever the inconvenience, because they know Jesus is the saviour who always lives to save them completely. Make sure that's you. But seeing this is speaking of apostasy is no reason for you to be complacent about other habitual sins in your life. To continue to sin knowingly. You know, for example, to continue when you know God calls on his people to be chaste to sleep with your girlfriend or boyfriend. To continue when you know. The Lord Jesus expects his people to be faithful in marriage, to pursue that affair with someone who's not your husband and wife, to continue where God commands forgiveness and to love our enemies to harbour bitterness or to indulge that critical pride, to not restrain your anger or your bullying tongue. You shouldn't be complacent on keeping on doing what you know Jesus forbids, because that's the sin of presumption, presuming on God's grace, and it is dangerous. Why? Well, for you to say, I can keep on doing something, even when Jesus forbids it, is to say, Jesus is not Lord. It's to deny him. Oh, You might think it's only denying him in a small part of your life, But to deny him in any part of your life is to deny him as your Lord. It's to say, I don't need Jesus. (laughs) I can do a better job than Jesus of running my life. I'm actually going to listen to and trust me, not him. See, that presumptuous sin, keeping on doing what you know Jesus forbids and doing it knowingly, is only a step away from apostasy. For you love your sin more than you love him. And so you'll soon jettison the Lord Jesus to continue your love affair with your bitterness or your lover. Do you know, it's because such knowing sin is so close to apostasy that congregations must practice discipline, must put out of their midst those who will not repent must exclude them from the Lord's table. You see, if we love our brothers and sisters, we don't want those sinning and sinning knowingly to be deceived about their state, to think that they're right with God while openly defying him. And so we want them to repent while they still can. So loving congregations, let a believer who is sinning presumptuously experience the judgment of the church so that they can repent and not experience the judgment of God. We should pray, shouldn't we? That God would give each of us such a dread of him that we really would know it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God that God would give each of us such a dread of him that we would flee from our sins, whatever they are. Flee from them. Because each one of us is convinced that only Jesus, only Jesus, crucified and risen, can spare us from the fearful expectation of judgment And the fury of fire that will consume God's enemies. We flee from our sin because we know Jesus is the only Saviour and we want nothing ever to separate us from Him and the hope He gives us of eternal life and the love which we have come to know in being His. Are you praying that for your brothers and sisters? You yourself know in your heart it is a fearful thing to fall into the, into the hands of the living God and so fleeing from sin. Well, when we're under pressure, whether it's external or the internal pressure of our desires, and yet we are convinced that there's nowhere else to turn, convinced that Jesus is the only saviour by his death, And that, well, we've got to keep living the life of those who trust him. When we're under that pressure but convinced, what should we do to keep going? Well, we'll see in the next few verses that there are two things. Firstly, we should continue as we've begun. And secondly, we need from the outset to recognise the need for endurance. That is, that those who have faith in Jesus should show it by being faithful to him. But we're actually going to come to that next week. For now, it's enough, isn't it? To think, am I being faithful to Jesus? Am I not letting myself drift away? Am I not absenting myself from his people and their meeting? Am I actually working with others to stir each other up to love and good works? Am I living the life of Jesus' follower, depending on him, coming to God boldly in prayer and being guided by my hope? Am I keeping on in that life? Because I know that the alternative... The alternative of growing cold, stopping meeting, giving up trusting Jesus is just so dreadful. Let's pray.